Smith here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 147, and I sat down and spoke with Eric Kellum. He is in Virginia, so we did this over FaceTime. Uh, He is a pastor there in Virginia, and he has a book coming out. Uh, When this episode airs, it will be March 7th. The book comes out March 8th, so good timing. Uh, The book is called Sexual Healing, A Man's Sexual Journey and the Lessons Learned Along the Way. Uh, Eric is extraordinarily open and honest about his porn addiction and recovery, and that is the the basis of our discussion when we talk about religion and uh, addiction and childhood trauma and all sorts of things. Really, really great information. Interesting and, again, very open and honest man. Check out his book for sure. I'll put links on the links page of heyhumanpodcast.com that will lead you to the Amazon uh, place where you can purchase Eric's book. Uh, It's on Kindle right now, and it's also going to be uh, on hardcover, too. So that is exciting. Um, Usual stuff. Again, I mentioned the links page. Um, I will put a lot of uh, stuff on there for this episode, as I do every episode. But I do want to mention just right now a resource uh, for anyone suffering or feeling like they're in the grips of addiction or maybe their family members or children or, or coworkers or friends or, or whatnot, here's a resource. Uh, it's Boys Town Hotline, and that's for anyone. You don't have to be a boy. Boys Town Hotline for men, women, children, parents, whatever. And the phone number there is 800-448-3000. And Eric was also very gracious and offered to give everyone his email, ek1speaks at gmail.com if you want to reach out to him as well. So, <clears throat> usual stuff, of course. Uh, social media, Hey Human Podcast. I'm on all the podcast places. On Twitter, however, I am under Susan Ruthism. I'm also Instagram, Facebook uh, for that too. But Hey Human Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Susan Ruthism, Twitter, Facebook, and also Instagram. <laughs> I'm all over the place. You can also find me at SusanRuth.com. And my music is on iTunes under Susan Ruth. I only mention that because it's great to get that out there. But also it helps sort of support the whole creative process. Keeping this podcast ad-free as long as I humanly can, which means I rely on other resources uh, to help support the podcast, including the Amazon portal, which is on the HeyHumanPodcast.com website. When you click on HeyHumanPodcast.com, you'll see the Amazon portal. You click on that, you shop Amazon just like you do normally, and it helps support Hey Human. So thank you for that, for those of you that do that. Also, there is a support button on the HeyHumanPodcast.com website. So (laughs) I have now said HeyHumanPodcast.com many, many times, so I hope you don't mind. You can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Happily, I will read your emails and answer them as best as I can. Uh, Next week's episode is going to be with a man who is a bail bondsman. Tripping over my tongue on that one. He's a bail bondsman, uh, which I formerly called a bounty hunter. But after talking with him, I know now not to call uh, them bounty hunters because that's really a a bit derogatory apparently so it's good to know that i'm learning every time i sit down with someone so that's uh that's upcoming next week 
everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, there's so many things to listen to. I know that the airwaves are, are crowded, and I'm, I'm very appreciative that you choose to listen to Hey Human. And uh, I hope you continue to do so. And, uh, yeah. All right. Shall we? Here we go. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for being on Hey Human. I really appreciate your time. Um, I really appreciate uh, being able to sit down with you. Yeah, it's good to meet you. Same here. And where are you in Virginia somewhere? I am in Triangle, Virginia, uh, right beside Quantico. Oh. We hear hear a lot of noises from the base. That must be interesting. Yes, it is interesting. Any UFOs? (laughs) (laughs) Not that they've publicized. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't seen anything suspicious? No, I haven't. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so I learned of you through Shay Littlejohn, who she's she's been on the show, and I adore her. She's amazing. Um, and is she, she's your sister-in-law or your sister? She's my sister. Yeah, your sister. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's awesome. Is she your little sister? No, actually, I'm the baby. You're the baby. Um, <laughs> but I think I probably look the oldest now. We have Shay, and then I have another sister, and. Um, I have more gray than both of them. So. <laughs> I haven't seen any gray on her yet. So. Yeah, I think she hides it pretty well, but listen, that that'll be just between you and yeah. I. And none, none of your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> She's getting married this year. Are you going to the wedding? Will I see? You oh man! Wow, you're putting me publicly on there. I told her um, <laughs> we have a business that we're trying to launch with the books, and my son's graduating. Um, and my wife and I are renewing our vows. And oh. I say, you pick, not only do you pick to get married, we could drive to Tennessee. You decided to go to Utah. I know, it's sort of random, isn't it? And she told me, well, I'm going to still be selfish. And if you have to go to debt, go into debt, then do so because it's my wedding. <laughs> so I'm like, that's a great sister, a loving sister. <laughs> you know? And she only, you know, she's getting married once, so, you know. Yeah. You're going? Uh, yeah, I think so. That's the plan. Oh, oh my gosh. It threw so me I, off for her to be in, to go. in Utah. I'm like, Utah! But, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> the things we do. So if you, you have any listeners from Utah, we're not bashing Utah. No, not, no, Utah is beautiful. I've been there a couple times just to get there, yeah. you know, like you said, yeah. from across, right. the, across the country can be a little nutty. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so Shay said you should talk to... Uh, Eric and, and listened to his story and she told me a little bit about you and uh, I said absolutely I'm in um, and uh, so the name of the book that you have just finished writing is Sexual Healing, A Man's Sexual Journey and the Lessons Learned Along the Way mm-hmm. and I have read the book and I really yes. enjoyed it and um, what let's I, I want to go all the way back of course but let's just start in the moment uh what made you decide to write this book um well i tell folks i wrote the book because my wife and i have amazing sex but that's my one liner just to get people's to provoke people and get their attention um the the line behind that is that i remember a time when we did not have amazing sex i remember a time where um we felt like we were not clicking on any cylinders and I had let certain issues bleed into our intimacy. I didn't even know what intimacy was, if I could be, you know, 
honest with myself and just looking back. And I think a lot of men probably don't. And so when I got to this place where I finally discovered a communication with my wife that was absolutely amazing beyond words, I just started to wonder um, how many other guys went through the same journey. And then, you know, I, I also happened to be a pastor, which makes the book even more interesting. Um, and just counseling and just sitting down with couples, um, you know, my wife and I just realized, wow, there this is a big issue. It's a big deal. And so three years ago, I started on this journey. And um, here we are today. Here we are today. How long have you been a pastor? I've been a pastor from, since 2012. Okay. So it's been about four and a half years. And what year did you get married? No, wait. That's six and a half years. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, when you get to a certain age. <laughs> I know, I get it. <laughs> uh, we got married in 1999, okay. August 14th. So it'll be 20 years um, in August. Ah, congratulations. Thank you so much. That is quite a milestone. Uh, yeah. So the impetus for this book, uh, as you said, was to say, hey, my wife and I have amazing sex, but it wasn't always like that. Um, let's now go back to the very beginning. And sure. you're a little kid, and uh, you begin your sexual journey how? Yeah, so I, I referenced in the book that I had uh, um, unofficial sexual education, which I think a lot of people, particularly males, go through. Um, sometimes it's welcomed, um, so, and you're exploring out of curiosity. Sometimes it's brought to your attention and you don't realize it. I can't say that it was anything traumatic as it, that I know that some other folks do have. Um, but I do remember, you know, innocently just sitting at home while my grandmother's watching Wheel of Fortune and she's falling asleep by the time you get to Jeopardy. And, uh, I'm curious on the TV control, and I discovered a Playboy channel. Now, my grandmother wasn't into Playboy. I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression. Um, but I had a cousin who had a way with configuring and maneuvering the the, um, the cable box, and he was able to get um, um, Playboy on, boy on there. Um, that same cousin, he was babysitting us one day, and he was nowhere around, and me and my other cousins were just playing. I went to look for him. And I walked in and, and discovered him in an act looking like he was hurting some young lady. But then it finally clicked in. OK, no, he's not hurting her. And, and you know, this was eight years old. Sure. So, you now you're unpacking a curiosity. You don't know what to do with it. Um, I keep going back, waiting for my grandmother to go to sleep to continue to go back to that particular channel. Um, as I get older in middle school, I'm introduced to um, hardcore porn. And, you know, you just, just kind of avalanches from there. Um, and that, in addition to the reality that no one sat down and had the conversation of what sexuality was really about. Um, my foster dad and my, Shay's my foster sister. I, uh, they, they brought me in to the home when I was 12 years old and I lived with um, Shay, um, um, my foster parents, um, you know, when I was 12. Um, and it was, I had a great foster father. He is a great man. Um, he has been a complete role model. Um, but we never had that conversation. And I bring that up, um, Susan, because, um, you know, I did a, I, I surveyed a hundred men when I was writing this book and 
I realized that from this limited poll that I created, out of 100, um, 83% would say that they did not have a conversation with their dad about sex. And a follow-up question is, well, how did you discover it? Their response uh, prominently was that either I figured it out or I just learned from watching porn. And that's really a big deal. So um, that's my story. And that's kind of what got me into trouble as I was going down this path of sexuality. Did you have, as you were developing your own sexual understanding as a teenager, um, how old were you when you lost your virginity? Um, I was 17 when I lost my virginity. But at that point, I was in a mission, on a mission to prove that I could lose my virginity because, again, no one explained what had happened. And I ran into a situation a couple of years prior where I felt like I had to convince myself of something. And, and um, what it was, you know, I uh, was a sophomore in high school and I was dating this freshman, which, you know, when you're a sophomore, you can't date the juniors or seniors. At least I couldn't because I didn't have a car and I wasn't upperclassman. So, we sophomores, we looked for the freshman that came in, and she was supposed to be quite the catch. Our terminology back in the 1990s, she was fly. That was our terminology in Dayton, Ohio. And um, we were, and the upperclassmen were, were sweating her, but she was into me. So I'm like, all right, great. I've got this fly girl. I found out very soon that she had a very fast reputation, and that didn't mean that she was on a track team, um, <laughs> which is crazy because she was a freshman and she was 14, but she already had the reputation that she was fast. So, you know, the, at the lunchroom, guys are saying, hey, man, you know, this particular lady, I don't reveal names in the book. No, of um, course. She's, you know, when are you going to hit that? You know, when are you going to have sex with her? And, you know, what we do in high school as men, we just lie about our sexuality because, you know, I didn't want to let them know, well, I'm a virgin and I'm not really pressed to do that. But, you know, what do you do? So a situation comes about. She um, is alone in my house and we are supposed to have sex. This is supposed to be my first time. I don't even think she knew it was my first time. And, um, it's really funny. I want to pause and share this part because I'll never forget it. Um, I don't know if you followed wrestling, but Macho bit. Man Randy Savage was like a, a prominent wrestler uh, in the um, in the 1990s. And he had a theme song. It, it really uh, it's like a, a famous um, symphony. And I forgot the name of it. But it's, it's what they play for graduations. Da, 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 yeah. Da, da. yeah. Yeah. That's um, pomp and circumstance. That was every time he came out, he came out to that song. Well, for me, this is like one of those Wonder Years situations. Like when she was unsnapping her bra, it was like that theme song was in my head. And it was like this discovery, like this is really happening. This is wow. And so there she is in the complete nude before me. And I can't get erect. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, this is the first time I'm dealing with like... Uh, um, erection, erectile dysfunction at the age of um, 15 or 16 years old and I'm squinting and thinking really hard trying to make that happen and nothing happens and she snickers and laughs and I know from the snicker that this is not going to be good. Long story short, she goes home uh, we don't say anything. I don't even know if we're together still at that point but I'm guessing we're not I don't go to school on Monday this all happened on the weekend 
And she has spread the word throughout the entire school about our situation, about our episode. And my best friend called me and told me and for the last, for the next two weeks, I had to live that down. And that just put an additional pressure and issue upon me to really think about well, what's going on? What's wrong? What did I do wrong? And, and started questioning certain things. And so at that point, I was at a pursuit and I was on a mission to prove something to myself, which I really didn't have to, but it just continued to go down this avalanche um, looking, of just building. Looking yeah, back, looking back, I mean, first of all, the fact that kids, really little kids, even have to have this in their wheelhouse is extraordinary. And your story yeah. is not un- uncommon. Obviously, kids today get a lot if not most of their information from pornography it's statistically mm-hmm. it's insane the the statistics they start looking at it as young as seven and eight years old as you were talking about with the playboy channel now did you equate as an eight-year-old what you were watching on the tv um did it arouse you and and you know did you equate it with those feelings so that then at 14 when you were faced with the real thing suddenly you're you're in the presence of a human being and it's a whole different scenario than what you've probably been programmed to, to Pavlovian expect out of pornography. Yeah, I, that was, that's a very good question. I, 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 I'm pretty sure that, you know, looking at it at eight years old, I don't know if I would say I was at the place of like arousal, but more so a pleasant curiosity. Like, wow, look at her. And I, let me let me see where this goes. Um, the whole, you know, when I went back and I, I started to unpack as an adult what took place um, with that particular young lady um, when I was a sophomore, I realized, you know, I've, I've even though I practiced this behavior later on um, at seventeen and eighteen, where I, you know, I did a one night stand or a hit it and quit it type of thing, that was never my mantra. That wasn't. You know, I felt like it, it was supposed to be something, the whole act of sexual sex was supposed to be something that evolved out of a relationship and a connection. And when it didn't operate in that way, it was very foreign. Um, and me and this particular young lady, I don't even know if we knew each other's last names. Like, it was that foreign and that strange. We were just together because we were supposed to be together according to societal norms of what's popular and and all this other superficial stuff so you know not knowing how to process that but only reading into the peer pressure as a young person um i think that was that was where the the struggle came in yeah do and one also thinks about the fact that a 14 year old sexually active girl probably had a lot going on in her life that you yeah. weren't aware of at the time, but now as an adult can go, oh, well, clearly that's not necessarily the norm. Yeah, see, that that, that really hits because I have four daughters now, and yeah. um, one is 14. She'll be 15 on Saturday. And um, just really thinking about, like, I think she ended up getting pregnant early. Like, I didn't, um, if I'm not mistaken, that um, girl. later from high school yeah which which i mean unfortunately and sadly makes a lot of sense um i think both of us were looking for a sense of an identity which a lot of people try to do through sexuality and um i mean it's a sad reality that you know that was 1990 Mm -hmm. something i mean how much more has that been 
you know, intensified now that we're in 2019, you know? Right. That's, we'll, we'll definitely get to that because that's a, that's a big deal. <clears throat> so as you're developing uh, through your teen and early 20s and you are on, as you put in the book, you're on these conquests, um, did you understand yourself enough to know that uh, you were developing an addiction? Um, to pornography and, and... I think the addiction came in when I, I really... Uh, <laughs> at some point, I lose my virginity, as I said, at 17, and I had some sexual episodes with different young ladies. And then I really didn't want to be bothered with having a girlfriend because it just seemed like it was so much emotional drama and I didn't want to deal with that. So I discovered masturbation and that just seemed like, man, this is like the solution of all solutions. I don't have to have any commitments or obligations and things of that nature. And from there, um, that's when an addiction to that really kicked in that and pornography and that was probably the hardest thing for me to shake um, and really get a hold of or control of. And that bled into my marriage. And what is your view now of masturbation? Um, so I, I believe that, um, and I use a good majority of the book to speak in the context of marriage, right? But even as a single person, there are certain habits that you put in place that if you are planning to get married, I think it's important to be mindful of. And so I believe that the images of masturbation are, uh, first, first of all, nine times, okay, maybe seven times, eight times out of ten, they're directly or indirectly linked to pornography. Like a man to masturbate, he has to have a visual image in front of him for the most part. I'm pretty sure I know some guys that have become so professional that maybe they don't. <laughs> but and I can't speak for every fellow, but from the from my experience and just having locker room conversations with other guys, you have to have a visual image in front of you. Well, unfortunately, the visual image um, that you have before you is so far fetched from the perception of reality of what your wife is. Um, it, it teaches you to look at a woman as an object as opposed to really not only appreciating her outer beauty, but seeing her inner beauty, discovering that inner beauty. It teaches um, her to just to be a tool, to be um, ends to a means to your orgasmic experience. Um, and it, 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 I, I, I go into this premise of um, it teaches you to get out of intimacy as opposed to giving out of intimacy. Mm -hmm. So the only reason you're going to masturbate in the first place is you're going to get to an orgasm. If you ask any brother how long it takes for them to, to achieve orgasm, they'll tell you, oh, I don't even need a minute. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In, in, in comparison to the time that it would take for um, a female. So you're already setting yourself up um, to, to um, be in a very tough situation um, when you come into um that relationship with that that person that matters most to you because you're ready to create you're ready to experience a selfless act but you're you've been doing it selfishly for a very very long time and that's where it contradicts and then you have the situation where you are intimate with your wife but you have images of the pornography that you saw 
But the reason why it's so addictive, I mean, that's a whole nother cat of worms, uh, or, or you can't say cat of worms, it's not, I just made a phrase up. That's a whole nother can of worms. I like it though, uh, cat of worms cat is good. Of worms. <laughs> yeah, maybe some cat would appreciate that, I don't know. Um, but that's a whole nother can of worms because um, I also don't believe that people um, pursue pornography or sexual issues just because they purely want to have sex. But I don't want to go too far. No, I know you don't want to give away the conversation. Yeah, you don't want to give away too much of your book. So, did a light bulb go off then for you? It's, I mean, clearly you had an aha moment. Well, I had an aha moment. I did. Here's the funny part. Even though I was a young teen trying to figure out this sexuality thing, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't get like the proper conversations that I, I felt I should have received, I did have enough sense in me to to realize a couple things now again i'm only speaking for myself so any other guys listening i'm not speaking for you and your sexuality i really don't want to know about you and your sexuality i'm only speaking for myself women are addicted to porn as well it's not a solely man thing well well this particular thing of leading to my aha moment um you know i experienced premature ejaculation like 17 18 years old age years of age and, you know, you look at different studies, different studies say different things. That's why I don't, even in my whole book, the way I write it, it's just from my experience. So I'm not trying to say this is the law. But for me, I firmly believe that me conditioning myself to experience um, masturbation excessively led to premature ejaculation. And I knew if I didn't know a lot of things about sexuality, I did know from watching TV and, and women joking about premature ejaculation and two minute brothers, I knew that I didn't want to take that into my marriage. And I was sensitive to that. And so that kind of caused me to slow down a little bit. It didn't correct any uh, a lot of stuff because there was still a lot of understanding about sexuality um, at that time that I just didn't get until later on down the road. But it was an aha moment to say, I need to take a break because I'm heading in the wrong direction. And that was, that's part of your mindset today that you, you think people should not masturbate and save themselves. It, that, that even self-sex is, is a form of cheating. Absolutely. I, I do believe that masturbation is having sex with yourself. I do believe that it conditions you um, to be self-focused in the act and that it conflicts or contradicts when you bring your particular partner um, into the experience. I have this ideal notion and, uh, you know, a lot of the notions that I have are based on certain biblical principles. I am a pastor. I can't shake that. But I believe that it was the heart of God, which, by the way, somehow throughout the course of time, we've taken God out of the conversation of sex even though I believe he created sex, um, created orgasms. Thank you, God. But, um, (laughs) amen, brother. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I believe that when we look at God and the essence of God being love, um, love defined in such a way that it gives unconditionally without expecting anything in return. And so if we, If I practice giving unconditionally to my spouse without expecting anything in return, and then my wife happens to practice the same thing, then we enter into this amazing euphoric experience that many people 
um, have no clue what that's like because we've been trained to be conditioned and to look out for ourselves as opposed to looking out for our significant other. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely do believe that. I know there will be people that would disagree and they'll give justifications. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to debate anyone. It's just that's the gospel coordinator. Eric. Well, you bring up a really interesting point because I think for true intimacy, there has to be true vulnerability. And for true Mm -hmm. vulnerability, uh, there needs to be a complete lack of reciprocity expectation. Yeah. And many uh, books about sex and coupledom and all that stuff um, talks about being present for your partner over yourself. That that's mm-hmm. truly a key. And you have, actually, I'm going to read this, if I may, um, something from your book that I actually texted this to you because I found it really quite beautiful. Um, I'm going to quote you here. I was no longer having sex with her to get a release. I was having sex with her to minister to her soul. I was having sex with her to comfort her. I was having sex with her so that we could both heal. I was having sex with gratitude for the fact that I had the honor and privilege to make love to my wife again. I mean, that's beautiful. Yeah, um, we almost did not make it in 2008. Um, she had discovered some of my some of some inappropriate text. Um, the pornography had bled into me actually reaching out to females on social media, um, saying and you know inappropriate sexual um, having those type of conversations. And my wife discovered that. And um, Susan, which is really weird calling you Susan because her name is Susan. Um, but <laughs> wife going Susan. through that, yeah, wife Susan, um, going through that, that place in our marriage, like at one point I didn't know if we were going to make it out. I, I really, I, I, I had no clue that we were going to make it out of that place. I call it hell on earth. It's the worst experience I've ever, it's, it's the reason why I have these gray hairs that I alluded to earlier. Um, and intimacy, I didn't understand intimacy before that. Cause if I did, I, I wouldn't have, um, messed with the other activities that I did, but even more so, um, what I did, what I did have, even though it wasn't intimacy, it became far worse than that because many times I felt like Susan had become a corpse. Like she would still oblige because she was in a state, well, I don't know if if I don't do anything for him, what is he going to do? Is he going to go out somewhere else? But I, I don't feel this anymore. So she would just be there. And, you know, I was sensitive to that. Like it, it became more than a physical release at that point. It was convicting because I knew this was not what was what God created it to be. And so when we started to heal and when we went through the process of healing and, and really being vulnerable, it took vulnerability to heal. It took um, knowing that she had to look at the ugliest side of me and still decide to love me. It took her taking this venom that I injected with her with my actions and walking her through getting that out of her even though i didn't want to hear it or face it anymore it took all of that to get to a place where that began to seep into our sexuality and our expression to one another and when we finally got to that point where it began to get healthy that's what inspired me writing that because i was like wow i never thought i'd get 
to this place. Well, and also, I think that it's important to point out that you both had the patience to, to know that it wasn't going to happen overnight, that this was a slow development over a lot, long time of finding and, that space again. And I hated that phrase. We would go to counselors. I would talk to my pastor and say, yeah, it's going to take time. And I did not want to hear, it's going to take time. I cringed every time someone said, because when I felt like we were accomplishing something, it still felt like it was going to take so much more time. And, you know, for many men, I mean, obviously infidelity is a significant issue in a lot of marriages. And healing from infidelity sometimes feels like it's impossible. I think from a man's perspective, because sometimes they don't want to put in the patience and the time to allow their spouse to heal. They just want to say, hey, I feel really bad. I'm really sorry I hurt you. Can you forgive me? And let's just move on. And they don't understand that. And and my wife was so brilliant in helping to paint this out to me. The, The moment I got my healing and I got this reflection of who I was and I decided to be a better man was the same moment when she realized her marriage wasn't what she thought it was. And so I'm leaving out of a situation because it's confronted me and I've made choices that it'll never happen again. But I, while I'm leaving out, I'm introducing her to a new world that she never asked to be a part of. And so now she had to go through the journey of questioning every single thing and what was real and what wasn't real and the whys. And I'm like, why do we have to talk about that? I've moved on. I'm healed. I'm the better version. Like, you don't have to deal with that again. And for a lot of men, we don't understand what we're dragging our wives through. Um, and we don't understand the patience that it takes to, to walk with them out of that in their time. And so, yeah, that, it, you know, what's funny, Susan, is this the hardest thing that we ever had to go through in our life. But I appreciate it because I don't think we would be as close as we are now. And I don't think our sex would be as beautiful as it is now if we didn't go through it. I mean, amen to that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and and it is, it's a tough decision to make for couples as to what they are willing to endure and how hard it is to get from point A to point B. And, and you have children, and so there's a whole, so mm-hmm. many things involved in that. And as you were starting to, in order for you to heal from where you were, Eric, mm-hmm. it required of you some deep, deep work of sense of self and looking back and you said Mm -hmm. yourself that you were a foster kid and so right there Mm -hmm. we're talking probably abandonment stuff and Mm -hmm. attachment stuff uh, and mother stuff and all these things and the divine feminine and you know all of this I mean that must have been a major aha moment because if you've been shut down for so long it's a weird irony, right? Ecstasy, like biblical ecstasy, is an out-of-body experience. It's touching the face of God. And yet, for many people who rely on pornography, um, when they then have sex with somebody in real life, quote-unquote, they are not in their bodies. It is not a grounded place. And so there's this weird sort of irony to that idea of out-of-body and what it all means and what ecstasy means. You can yeah. I, for me. I feel like it's pretty obvious somebody who's been raised up on porn because they're not in this moment. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, 
one thing that my wife would ask me um, often when we were in a place of, of um, healing, we were still in ICU rather. <laughs> and, um, you know, we were trying to, to um, progress to the next stage. And during the intimacy, she would ask me, um, do you see me? And, you know, my dumb husband responds would be like, heck yeah, I see you. I see everything that's happening. But going back to look at what she was really asking, she was saying, when you're with me, do you see just me? Or do you see images in your head of other things that you've explored and looked after? And, um, you know, I, I got to a point where I felt horrible that she would even have to ask that question. That that I was in the moment with her, but in times when I was with her, I wasn't with her, you know, and um, it really is sad. And and, you know, you alluded to um, the the a lot of this, you know, the self, the, the journey I went through was with healing was um, it was very rewarding because it challenged me to look at myself and to look at the ugly parts of who I am, which I think many of us humans, hey humans, I think many of us are afraid to do. We are afraid to say, this is what's wrong with me. And not necessarily to say it to fix it, not necessarily to say it to make an excuse, just saying it to say, this is what I'm dealing with when I deal with myself and this is what someone else is going to have to deal with when they deal with me and I'm going to continue to address it, but this is what it is. And, you know, um, I was abandoned. I was, I was abandoned. I was left at a bus station when I was five years old. Um, never knew my dad. And I didn't realize until I had to unpack this, um, with the threat of almost losing my wife, how much that situation at five years old had impacted um, a survival mechanism within me. Like growing up, I, I remember it had to be around um, eight, nine, ten years old. Some girl stopped me and said, you're so cute. You're going to be a heartbreaker when you grow up. Can you be my boyfriend? And as simple as those little subtle lines were, because I knew she was playing. I knew she was she was far older than me. Like she was like a teenager. I was just a kid. But those simple words made my day because it gave me attention. You got to understand my, my biological mom who provided all the nourishment that a kid is supposed to have should come from your mom. She left me. And I had a nourishment deficiency like I didn't. So me getting that. And so I created this little survival mechanism where I would just learn to get attention from females. And that's what that was like my fix. That was it wasn't even a sexuality, you know, with with all of the um, explorations that I did, even in my marriage, I never had sex with anyone else outside of my wife. And people guys like, yeah, right. Come on. E, you sure? I'm. For real, for real, and and you know, I, if you if I'm going to write a book about it, then I'm pretty either dumb or pretty confident that that's accurate because at least someone would definitely call me out. But I never wanted sex. I really wanted to get the attention from you know, first and foremost from my wife. And when I felt like I wasn't getting it from my wife, I just wanted the attention so we could fill this void that I had since I was five years old. And I didn't realize it. I didn't even realize that that was something that I was wrestling with. And one could argue that no matter how much attention your wife gave you, it would never fill up that kind of 
childhood trauma. Yeah, true. But here's the crazy part about it. I wanted attention, words of affirmation. That's like my thing, right? Your love language. That's my language. But guess what? That is so far from my wife's. But do you know why it's so far from hers? Because you just heard about my upbringing. What we found later on in our healing process, her upbringing was filled with her dad calling her the scum of the earth. So words were used against her to put her down. And I'm fiending for words. She doesn't see the value of giving words because they don't have any worth. And we're clashing because we don't know how to be intimate with each other mm. to uncover the layers of what what is preventing our relationship from flowing. I mean, it was so deep when we came into that understanding. Like, wow, we've been missing it all this time. And that makes me wonder how many couples are missing it because they never get to that level of intimacy. They get the sex down and then eventually the sex fades, but they don't continue the sex, the, the intimacy and, and, and that intimate conversation. And they miss really knowing and understanding each other. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, do you when you look at kids today, for example, and really not even kids. I mean, I can't put this all on children, adults, too. So obsessed with technology in their phones I mean, people bump into walls and fall into the water and, you know, (laughs) crash their cars and, you know, all that stuff because they're not, uh, they're not present in the real world. They're present into the, oh, we're losing connection again. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, good. Slides, you can hear me. Um, They're, you know, they're present into the technology, but not into each other. I went to a Mm -hmm. party once where the two teenagers were sitting on a couch across from each other, texting each other. Texting each other. Literally across the couch from each other, and they were texting. Now, part of that was probably because they didn't want the adults in the room to hear what they were saying, but there's also another level to that. Yeah, it is. It's almost like a wall there, because um, while technology has its conveniences, it's also, um, it's like, it gives you... It's how do I explain it? It's kind of like this barrier. I can be myself, but I can only be myself as long as I do it through this phone. Right. And most like people aren't themselves, the, right? They use technology to troll other people and to be right, other people. Yeah. And yeah. 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 But yeah, it, it, it could continue to threaten this, um, this, this goal of getting to a place of intimacy. Yeah, um, it's it a complicated a uh, relationship because technology gives us so much, and yet it has crippled us. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it has. So, how do you discuss this stuff with your kids? I, I'm, I mean, you're writing, you wrote a book, so clearly, if they go and get the book, they're gonna hear all of your deep dark secrets. <laughs> yeah, my my 14 year old daughter. I have, as I said, I have four girls. Um, my, I have a 18-year-old son. Um, my 14-year-old daughter said, great, eventually I'm going to go through school and people are going to be, know me as um, the daughter of the sex pastor. Thanks, Dad. Um, and, uh, you know, my wife and I have made, been intentional to make sure that sexuality and sex was not taboo words that we had in their upbringing. And not wait until their adolescence 
you know, obviously, yeah, you are, you do use discretion based on the different, like I have an eight-year-old. Certain conversations I wouldn't have with my eight-year-old that I would have with my 14-year-old or my 18-year-old. But, I mean, there are certain things that we intentionally and purposely do. Like, they know when the door is locked, mommy and daddy are, are, are loving each other. And even the eight-year-old knows that, and that's just a part of which I think is excellent because children also have to see healthy intimacy. It's not absolutely. They shouldn't you shouldn't hide that away. I think because that teaches shame, which is another huge issue with our culture. Well, I get so upset with um, um, my Christian brothers and sisters in church converse about sexuality from a um, reactive or a preventative approach. As far as well, we just say don't do it. All right, flee fornication. And, and and adultery, we just those are the only conversations we have about it. And and there's different reasons, you know. Possibly there's certain insecurities that folks have um, that they don't feel comfortable discussing it. But if we don't talk about it, if we don't have the conversations, then we're really setting up our kids because they are curious. I mean, you see what they can do with technology has nothing to do with sex. They can figure out a gadget that we'll have in our hands for like five minutes. Like, how do I work this? This button. And they'll say, oh, that's simple. And they'll do it in three seconds because they have an inquisitive mind anyway. So how much more are they going to continue to, to soak up and glean information, but from the wrong or from unhealthy sources, if we don't intervene and have those conversations, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it's it's very important for for us to be intentional as parents, um, and 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 I think the key is to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Like having conversations with my son about sex, um, like when we first started having conversations, it just annoyed him. Like, Dad, why are you bringing this up? And um, we have this phrase around the house, like uh, like if we're if we're going to have an uncomfortable conversation we say it's only weird if we make it weird right so um i would continue to have them and then like you know parents look for these little things as a reward like you're doing the right thing one day he comes to me at 16 and he's asking me a question about sexuality and i've got to keep my poker face and be like okay okay and then inside i'm like yes he's come to me like all this that I put in and trying to have these conversations, he's coming back to me. And so, you know, long story short, I just just the importance of pressing through the uncomfortableness to get to a point where you feel like, OK, we can have an exchange and you're not going to be judged. Um, you're going to be loved. And, you know, my goal is to just walk you through that. Now, since and you're, I feel, oh, sorry, let me interrupt. And, and the other point is not feel like. Just because, like, a lot of parents would be like, well, I don't even feel qualified to talk to my kids because then they're going to ask questions about my past. And, man, if they do that, then they're going to come back and say, well, if you did all of that, why can't I? You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, you know what? One of the biggest things, I don't don't hide this information from my kids about this journey that I went through because now they get to see the good and the bad. And maybe them seeing the bad will say, you know, for my son, I don't want to take any anyone down that path. And for my daughters, that helps me to look at what type of mate I'm looking at as far as certain things that I saw that my dad has exposed, both the good and the, the bad and the ugly. So mm-hmm. um, I think it all matters. 
Now, since for you, masturbation, you think that's something that you shouldn't do and that you should wait to marriage until you have sex. Am I correct in that? Um, I think that you should wait until marriage. And I think that even in marriage, it could still be very tricky. I think, you know, in the context of a sexual union with a husband and a wife that, um, you know, the Bible says there's no limitations in the bedroom as to what you can do. So um, if that's something that you and your wife are doing, that's great. But I think it still can be tricky if you're married, but you're still masturbating on your own. Like if your wife is helping you out, that's great. Um, and that's an expression. But if it's something that you're doing, you could still slip into that self-focused expression as opposed to selfless. So how do you teach your children, or for that matter, since it sounds like you're a pretty open pastor, how do you talk to parishioners who come to you for advice? How do you incorporate this concept without putting a veil of shame around it? You know, because a lot of people the discovery of their own bodies that's how they learn what they like and they don't like and things like that so i'm curious how you how you can learn about who you are and, and what you need in in the context and the framework of of what your belief system is um well first of all a lot of parishioners don't come to talk to me about that because that feels weird and they're just not in a place where they feel comfortable um as far as the discovery, you know, this this feels uh, really old fashioned and I hate to say it like this, but I really believe that the act was intended to be something that a husband and wife are supposed to discover together. And um, I think that when we um, start exploring on our own, that's when we kind of goof it up. And I know that that's really difficult to say in 2019 because, as you said before, the exposure of technology puts so many things in your face prematurely. Well, I just I just think that that's 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 the result of us um, living in that type of life. But I think the original intent, sexuality in and of itself, um, is supposed to be a um, a reminder of the covenant that a man. Made with his wife. But you're also listens. you're 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 not homophobic. If I, from my understanding from reading your book, you are okay with same-sex couples as well. I am not homophobic. Um, I'm not homophobic. I do believe. Um, I do believe in the Bible, and I believe in what the scriptures um, say about just about everything and i know that that's t i was listening to a conversation you had with uh, a pastor oh yeah um, stan mitchell yes and um I, I i respectfully do not agree with everything he says i i don't like being in the same box as like what we like to do is we like to typecast and say you're this because you say you believe in this, you're this. We, we do it with politics all the time. Sure. So I believe that the child, I believe at the end of the day, um, the Bible is very clear on its positions on certain things, but I don't believe that there should be discrimination on anybody at any level because you identified them doing something that seems like it's contradictory to what scripture says. And so I think the one thing that the church does is church because they're very uncomfortable with the topic of homosexuality. 
oh my gosh, they have their radar guns out and they are ready to blast. And, you know, I've been in settings. We've had settings down here in Prince William County where I've built some great relationships with folks that are homosexual, transgender, had great conversations. And it was birthed out of uh, the one situation was a board of education um, and whether they were going to decide to make locker rooms and bathrooms um, used for, you know, both genders. Now, because I prescribed to, to, to what the Bible says, there was one side of the seat that I sat on. But I was really grieved that so many Christians came out. Susan, it felt like it was a crusade. Like they were out to just let's let's go attack the Christian or the homosexual agenda. And it was like it grieved me. So I left out what was taking place there. And I went to talk to this um, um, transgender person. I had a great conversation. And we we don't sit on the same side as far as what we believe. Mm hmm. But our relationship is so much deeper than that. You understand what I'm saying? I that's why I, I really, mean that's the whole that's the whole reason for Hey Human is to. Speak. That's why I was going to say. That's why I love your show <laughs> because you. I shouldn't. I, when we get to a point, whether it be in this conversation, whether it be the conversation about race or, or or whatever the topics are, when we get to the point that where in areas where we disagree, it it puts us in a place where we cannot tolerate or live in the same space where we can't respect other person so so if you even if i don't believe in what you believe i still have to respect you i have to respect the rights that you have you know what i'm saying Absolutely. so um um yeah I, I i i i do my best to walk the line of um being very clear as far as what I do believe is according to, I believe in the Bibles. I know some people believe that the Bible is antiquated and it doesn't apply for 2019. You're talking to a person that from the age of five dealing with abandonment, not having a father and coming out to be the productive person that I am in life. The main source of, of who I am and what I am was because of me following passages and scriptures according to my faith. So that's where I align my faith on certain things. But it also, if nothing else, you know, the main the main character and the hero of what I believe in is Jesus and everything he embodied was love. Then if I am saying that I believe in him, but I'm demonstrating a lack of love to people that don't believe what I believe, then I'm just throwing my faith out the window. It's a it's a it's a piece of trash. So. They mean to go down that tangent. No, it's um, very well said, Eric. I, I mean, I think that's very well said. How, when you decided to become a pastor, you know, you've been, you said six, six and a half years. Did you, was that a tough decision to make given your history or did it make it that much easier? Because you thought, well, now I personally believe that the dark night of the soul is one of the greatest gifts that we are given on this planet mm -hmm. because we can't understand and have empathy for our fellow humans until we've experienced some of the deep tragedies of life and i mean and i don't wish them on anyone obviously but without learning of our own darkness it's very hard to touch the light you know yeah yeah and i agree with you I agree with you 100 percent. it wasn't necessarily the my past that was the concern for me it was more so because i'm i, I don't i it, i don't 
care what position you're in, I'm willing to believe that there's a dark journey that you have, that there's some things that you really wouldn't want to let somebody in on. As far as if they took a, a, a path down your, your time machine, you know what I'm saying? Yes. yes. It wasn't necessarily that part. It was more so, you know, I was comparing myself to pastors that I saw and telling myself, I can't be that. And feeling a sense that God was leading me to, to, to and showing me, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to become a pastor or a representative for me, not so that you can be that, but that you can speak to a group of people that can't understand that. Like somebody, a lot of stuff that I do without the box is very unconventional. Um, I'm very, as you can tell, I'm very transparent. Um, I believe that our transparency is a golden key of not only understanding who we are, but making a connection to the next person. And a lot of people in the pulpit are afraid to be transparent because of the image that they're trying to portray. Right. You know, the only person that I'm trying to impress for the rest of my days is my God and, and my wife and my kids. You know what I'm There's saying? great power in great vulnerability. I think that Absolutely. you take away, as soon as you take away other people's ability to hurt you, in other words, when you yeah. are fully in yourself and say, this is me, warts and all, nothing can hurt you because nothing can penetrate that, that depth. You got that from 8 Mile, didn't you? Eight Mile? Is that Eminem's movie? <laughs> you remember when he was in the last, I don't know if you saw the last battle, and so the guy was movie. about to bash on him, but Eminem pointed out all of his flaws like this, I live in a mobile home, I'm trash, I'm this, I'm that, now that's what right. do you have to say about me? I remember And the that guy now. was speechless. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a great scene, but it's it's exactly right, that if if you own who you are, nothing can hurt you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so glad. You know, it, it's funny because as I was reading your book, you and I don't agree on some things. I mean, mm -hmm. it, but, which is fine, like we talked about. Yeah. But I, I think I remember sending you this note saying, I am just so happy that a book like this is out there that's talking about all this stuff, even within the context of, of religion and church and, you know, being a pastor and all that stuff. Because more than ever, I think that conversation needs to happen in the walls of the church. Because look what silence has brought. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's brought a lot of darkness, you know. And yeah. so I'm just glad that this voice, your voice, is reaching out. And you make um, a lot of call-outs to people. You do continually through a book. You say, hey, if you need someone to talk to, if you need someone to hold you accountable, and I think accountability is a really uh, interesting theme throughout your book. And in fact, you brought up um, Covenant Eyes, which I had never heard of that before. Yeah, Talk a little bit yeah. about this, uh, being each other's, you know, brother's keeper, if you will, if in biblical terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, I think that the funniest not the funniest, but the great. Well, the craziest thing is that a lot of us go through and I, I'll say this in the context of men and husbands. A lot of us go through this very similar journeys. But we're so prideful and egotistical and um, not willing to be vulnerable and bear our souls that we have no idea that we can help each other out, you know, because nobody's going to put themselves out there. And I think when we when. You know, 
for me to get to the point where I was to the point here, I, I had to have some significant mentors, some significant brothers that were my age going through similar situations or maybe a little bit ahead of me. And I even had to have some folks that I was mentoring in my life because all of that is different levels of accountability. And that's where I found a lot of significant growth. We, I believe God created us to be relational. And, you know, I think society tries to drive us to be so independent and so isolated from everyone else through our social mean, um, our social uh, media expressions, as we alluded to before. But we find strength when we are in connection. And so I think that um, it is a very important key, particularly if there is a man that is wrestling with these type of issues and they're seeing the type of um consequences that it's having on their household and they really don't feel like they know what to do they need help you know um one thing i wanted to refer back to i think that because and i can only speak in the context of um you know being a a black man that grew up in black culture so never been white i'm told my dad is white but i don't know um i like to pretend that i could be like i'm part dominican and part so i like to imagine sometimes but anyway i digress but being a black male knowing the statistics that about 60 to 70 percent of fathers are not in the homes of um, their children like i don't know what the statistics are with other cultures but i know fatherlessness is a significant issue in and of itself because even if a man is in the home if he's working 12 to 14 hours a day then he's not spending time with his kids mm-hmm. and if he's not spending particularly if a father is not spending time with his son then he's not telling him what like like susan intimacy in and of itself even for a man it starts with his engagement and interaction with his parents healthy intimacy starts with a father and a son and their healthy engagement and something in our community in our culture if there were any males in our lives they would say you better not cry suck it up be a man you know what are you a wimp you a coward and so we're taught okay i've got to be tough i've got to hold this in I've got to just, you know, and and so then when do I get permission to be vulnerable? So there's a lot of, there might be some guys listening to you say, and they say, I I hear what you're saying, but how do I do that? How do I just, just give in from this complex that I have to be the man all the time, even in front of my wife and show my vulnerability? Because if I do that, she's going to think less of me. And and that's not the truth. That's a myth. But I, I can tell you, I know that that's something that a lot of men struggle with. Yeah. And I think that, understandably, uh, culturally, you speak to a really significant issue. Um, and also, I think that men across the board are given that weird story that they're not supposed to feel or show emotion mm-hmm. uh, that they have to be this tough guy and over yeah. time I hope that's starting to change but I do think that you're absolutely spot on that the relationship between parents and children is is where it all begins obviously mm-hmm. and it, yeah. I mean d- down to how kids feel about their own bodies and self-worth and all that and we are mirroring children learn they're insane supercomputers sucking in everything around them and if they are seeing strange things afoot with their parents or the single parent or you know brothers and sisters or uncle you know whatever that is imprinting at such an important time of development mm-hmm. yeah yeah it is 
There's so much to unpack. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, I was going to ask you a question, but I thought if I asked you the question, it was going to unpack so much no, more. No, it's I was, okay. Please, I, I absolutely. Are are you? I, like I know you're you're in Tennessee, right? I am. Yes. And you are from what I the limited information I know about you. I know that you're um, you're you're a part of the country music community. I write. Right. I'm a professional songwriter, but I write in all genres. But Nashville okay. certainly is. So you're you're familiar with what's going on with R. Kelly? Yes, I am. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. I have not seen the documentary because I think it's on Hulu or HBO or something, and I don't have those those channels. So I have to wait for it to hit Netflix. <laughs> so it's interesting when I, you know, going through what I've gone through and just looking at. I mean, obviously, for one, you see so many things and scandals and everything coming out in the news now, right. which I believe is a result of this suppression. It's a result of, you know, these sexual issues that different men have. Well, and they've but been even, around forever. I mean, pornography yeah. is, is as old as time also. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but for one, women are speaking up, which they have the right to do and they should sure. be doing so. Sure. Um, and, and, and But I think, you know, it's a time like there's a zeitgeist of... You know, certain things and should no longer be tolerated anymore. But even looking at what's going on with his documentary, it's very interesting. In the first episode of this, you know, series, he talks about um, a time where he was molested at the age of seven or eight years old. And, you know, you know, I, I having four girls, I'm, I, I don't make any excuse for the actions that he ultimately committed they were crimes. Um, they were inappropriate. Uh, I do hope that some type of trial or judgment is done um, because it has to send a message that our daughters are valuable and they're worth, they're worthy. But at the same token, I see a seven or eight year old child because I was seven or eight. Now I didn't go down the road that he went down, but I know what it's like to be exposed to certain things. And it went a step even further with him because it was actual molestation and he had no therapy, you know, no counseling, no way. And, and here's the interesting part about it. Um, it also speaks in the documentary that his brother was molested too. Mm -hmm. And he was a little older when his brother was molested. Right. And when um, his brother came to him and said, I was molested, R. Kelly said, no, you weren't. And don't tell anyone about that. Now, how does a little child or boy just factor in their mind? This is something that's bad that's happened to me. But if I even open my mouth about this, then it's going to impact so many people in a bad way. So I'll just keep shut and suppress it. And so I'm saying, man, this is such a, a significant issue. My whole heart in, in writing this was never to, to offer the solution. I, I always wanted to offer what worked for me, mm. but I also wanted to provoke the conversation. I'm good at provoking. <laughs> I wanted to provoke the conversation sure. and say, listen, we need, if nothing else, families, households, marriages, we need to talk about this. Absolutely, 100%. And speaking to the R. Kelly, uh, and for those listening who don't know, there, it's a documentary, is it four or five episodes talking about... It's about four or five episodes, yes. Allegations that he um, uh, is, is pedophilic in nature and that he preyed Ooh, on young girls, young artists especially. Um, yes. And I haven't seen it, so I can't speak entirely to what it is. And you bring up a good point, and there... It is one of those, 
you know, I know tons of people who have been molested. It's, you know, it's everywhere you turn and look, some uh, turned out okay, whatever okay means, but, you know, functioning in society without repeating right. the cycles. Other people sure. repeated the cycle. Other, some ended up in jail. Some people, you know, took it one step further. And, um, you know, I, you know, I talked to a lot of people, so I have had conversations with people yeah. that have done some pretty, just, you know, uh, well, I mean, just things that I would consider personally, I wouldn't do that I consider wrong and unethical or, or, you know, beyond the pale. And the thing is, is at the same time, in the presence of these people or in my mind thinking about these people is that first of all, I'm not them. So I, I can't say the kind of trauma and destruction that goes on within the human psyche that then creates a person that then hurts another person. Some people don't respond that way. Some people do. Yeah. Some people go to war and kill others and come home and are fine. Others have PTSD. Others commit suicide. There's, there's how do you know it's such a crazy deep important conversation to say like that a ted bundy who was hor you know abused by his grandfather does that give him a right to go out and murder women of course not but there's right. a sense of understanding oh but i can see why yeah where is the intervention you know where's the person that could have stepped in and and helped him and maybe that maybe it wouldn't have helped it's, there's just so many layers, you know. It's fascinating. Yeah. See, that's why I didn't, I didn't want to uh, <laughs> go into that. Yeah, except I love talking about so all this stuff. <laughs> I do love talking about yeah. it. Yeah. Eric, I don't want to take all your time, but I, I do. I appreciate that you wrote this book. Tell people how they can find it. All right. Well, um, it is officially going to be released on March eighth um, via ebook through itunes and amazon but you can get the um physical copy or you can pre-order the physical copy now by going to getsexualhealing.com again that's getsexualhealing.com if you pre-order it i'll autograph it for you personally um and so um hopefully folks will check it out and how if somebody wants to reach out to you to talk about their own stuff um how might they contact you yeah, you can email me directly um, at um, e, um, ek1speaks at gmail.com. Um, e is an Eric, K is in Callum, the number one, ek1speaks at gmail.com. And again, the name and of the book is Sexual Healing, A Men's Sexual Journey and the Lessons Learned Along the Way. Eric, absolutely. thank you so very much for being on Hey Human. I really appreciate it. And Thank you, Susan. Maybe I'll see you at the wedding. Yeah, yeah. I think you probably will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. All right. Thank you. Again, everyone, thanks for listening. Please take a moment and rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Thanks again. Bye.